Hi, you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. The so-called Inflation Reduction Act has been getting a lot of media attention lately, and perhaps unsurprisingly, that attention is related to things in that bill that have nothing whatsoever to do with inflation reduction. Instead, there has been a lot of concern about new funding for the IRS or Internal Revenue Service and other changes to the IRS related to the $80 billion the new bill will provide to the agency over a few years. Specifically, there's been a lot of focus on the claim that the IRS will be hiring over 80,000 new employees, some of whom will be allowed to use lethal force. Uh, But less focus has been paid to how the IRS, as part of this new bill, will be moving taxes into the digital realm sooner rather than later, propelling Americans deeper into the digital banking world where central bank digital currencies, the subject of episode number 35 of this podcast, are soon set to dominate. In addition to new policies and powers for the IRS, it also appears that the Inflation Reduction Act is actually more like a climate change bill. As I've noted several times over the past year, including on this podcast and elsewhere, there are efforts to make an entirely new economic and financial system that is being ushered in under the guise of climate change, and none of the actual motivations behind those efforts are actually related to planetary or environmental health. It is worth noting that the Inflation Reduction Act Uh, despite its name implying its its main purpose is reducing inflation, has instead been heralded as America's first significant climate legislation by outlets like Fortune Magazine, among others. And indeed, many of the policies within this bill are clearly aimed at moving the country closer to this new quote-unquote green economic system as it creates a national green bank and the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, among other financial entities focused ostensibly on climate. Joining me today to discuss these issues and much more is Catherine Austin Fitz. Catherine is the president of Solari Inc., which publishes the Solari Report. She is also a managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services. Prior to Solari, she held top positions at the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dillon Reed & Co., and was also Assistant Secretary of Housing and the Federal Housing Commissioner for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. For longtime followers of independent media, Catherine's name is likely familiar for her investigations with Mark Skidmore into the missing $21 trillion stolen out of U.S. government accounts, as well as her work on exposing FASAB 56, which is the government accounting practice that both enables and obfuscates the mass theft of taxpayer money from U.S. government accounts. In the COVID era, Catherine has also been an important voice in alternative media on matters relating to digital IDs, vaccine passports, and central bank digital currencies, among other things. So thanks so much for joining me today, Catherine. It's great to have you back on Unlimited Hangout. Thanks. And, you know, Whitney, I just have to mention to your audience that I spent the last week at Lake Contents. I was there to, you know, to rest and recuperate see the opera, go to concerts. What I did was I opened up a a draft copy of your new book. And instead, I spent the week immersed in organized crime because I couldn't stop reading it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you are one of the few people who's read both volumes uh, already, Um, you know, one of the review copies. And uh, so I really (laughs) am glad that you liked it. (laughs) I, I I loved it. I just loved it. Anyway, I, I told you earlier, I said it's it's the ultimate begats of American organized crime. So um, so we we have a complete history of all the threads that come together in the horror that was Epstein. But anyway, so let's dive in because we're here to talk about the IRS. Uh, but I do hope I get to talk to you about Epstein soon because um, I, I can't wait for your book to become available. Uh, thank, well, I'm sure we will talk about it sooner rather than later. That's for sure. Um, but yes, uh, ostensibly we are talking today about the Inflation Reduction Act. 
Uh, but there is a lot to say um, about Epstein and about the book. And I've been doing a lot of interviews recently uh, trying to discuss, uh, you know, uh, why the book was split into two volumes and other things about that and what it's what it's about, what it's what I hope it will accomplish and things like that. But thanks a lot for your kind words, because I worked really hard on it, <laughs> which I think people will notice. <laughs> I, well, you're, you're competing with RFK for most footnotes <laughs> ever. <laughs> well, I... That may have been intentional, wasn't it? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just wanted things to be really thoroughly sourced because you know how, uh, quote unquote, fact checkers like to be. I gave them plenty to fact check, so <laughs> um, I'll keep them busy. Anyway, uh, so let's start start off talking about taxes and the anticipated changes uh, to the IRS. There's been these claims going about that it's going to be 87000 uh, new employees, talks about lethal force, talks about um, all sorts of different changes coming to uh, the agency. What is actually going on? Um, why should people be concerned and what can people do about it? So the, uh, so the, new, so the Inflation Reduction Act um, authorized the spending of $80 billion for the IRS. Um, it didn't authorize 87,000 new positions for the IRS. That number comes from a study that Treasury did when the original bill was created in 2021, saying that it would fund 87,000 new IRS employees over a 10-year period. If you look at the focus of the internal, and now wh why was this in the bill? When you're passing a bill that's spending enormous amounts of new money, you always try to find revenue sources. Mm -hmm. And the theory is that spending $80 billion on IRS enforcement will produce many multiples of $80 billion for the Treasury in terms of collections, fines, other fees associated with audit. So you're basically looking at a money-making proposition is the way it's proposed. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, let me put this the numbers in context. Um, if it did fund 87,000 new staff, that is uh, basically almost a doubling of the IRS employees, and it compares to the total tax preparers in the United States of 83,000. So in theory, they could hire 100% of the tax preparers in America you know, to fill that. So it's a very chilling number. My favorite comparison, and remember, this is over a 10-year period, but my favorite comparison is $80 billion compares to the Russian military annual budget of $67 billion. <laughs> That's nuts. So this oh, is man. of sending in the Russian army to invade the United States. And it came <laughs> at the time when the there are many different agencies. When I left government, I think 51 agencies were authorized to carry guns and use lethal force. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's a high number, but we've seen scopes of work out on the internet of people being offered jobs where they're backing up um, IRS agents in the field with lethal force. Mm -hmm. They're carrying gun and they're available on call 24 seven to go in. Now, one of the reasons that I'm particularly concerned with this proposal is there is a tremendous effort on the part of Wall Street using very cheap money, you know, whether directly or indirectly provided by the Fed to go buy up all the real estate in America. So there's a real push on Wall Street's part to basically buy single family homes and turn most of the population into renters 
basically mm-hmm. reverse the home ownership. Um, it's a very ugly picture, and a lot is done to move in on, you know, residential communities to have Wall Street buy them up. I just had a, a subscriber who's a broker in Texas tell me that last year in his county, 52% of the single family home purchases were essentially Wall Street. So, you know, they're coming in with cash and they're they're running things up. Now, um, I said, I think it's unlikely that the IRS will hire 87,000 agents. And the reason why is, I think the real focus will be on using very invasive digital systems to play gotcha on people. So, um, you know, the IRS has access to very invasive data about all your finances. They use AI and software to go through everything and play gotcha in a way that's really a for-profit business that's there to make money. Mm -hmm. In the passage of this bill, there was great sort of hoopla with the agency saying they were really going to focus with people whose income was over 400000 The history of the IRS is people who make more than 400000 a year have too much political clout, and they always end up going after you know people who end up essentially losing their homes or losing a lot of their assets. Yeah. I mean, if it was just focused on Americans that earn over 400, you know, thousand a year, why would they be investing so much and basically doubling the size of the agency more or less? Or like, you know, um, it's obviously meant to go after a much larger number of people than are in that much higher, you know, uh, a tier of income. Right. Yeah. Although, you know, in theory, if you were going to go after the big corporations, um, you you would need a fair amount of brain power, but I agree with you. Eighty seven thousand, um, or the the kind of numbers they have in here. Um, now let me tell you one of the things that is of most concern to me. In addition to the idea of, um, uh, if you want to get an example of this, the IRS let a contract to Planeteer in two thousand eighteen, and it was a seven year contract, and it is an example of the kind of software technology I'm talking about. And if you look up the story of that contract being let, you'll get a sense for how they're going to play this game with invasive technology. Um, one of my concerns is that if you look at Yeltsin's, um, Yell, I'm sorry, Yellen. Uh, if you look at <laughs> Treasury Yellen, I always think of her as Yeltsin. Um, if you look at her directive, my interpretation of her directive, but you know, you have to see how the details roll out is she's planning on using set-asides, which means let's say you have money um, at Treasury Direct. You've gone to Treasury Direct and you've bought an inflation bond through Treasury Direct and they determine that you uh, owe the IRS $2,000. They can just grab it from your Treasury Direct. Or if they're depositing direct in your account, they're just grabbing it direct without a court order. So um, if you look at how they're going to play the digital game, you know, the devil's going to be in the details, but between the invasive software and then grabbing things direct, I think there's a real concern about um, how invasive this could be. And um, if you look at what it takes, you know, I spent 11 years and worked for free for 36,000 hours to prove that the government allegations against my company were trumped up and fake and they tried to fake evidence but it it cost me literally 11 years and millions of dollars and 30,000 hours to prove that they were lying and not everybody has that kind of you know is willing to make that kind of investment to do so so 
So this is going to be, uh, now, what do we do about it? What's very important, if you come to Solari, there's an article, it's public called, uh, it's by my, uh, our general counsel, Carolyn Betts, about archiving your documents. You want to make sure you have perfect records. You want to make sure you documenting, particularly if you're doing crypto, you want to make sure you have great records. You have records of all your swaps. You have records of all your trades. You know, if you use cash, so I try to use cash for everything you want to, you want to do as possible, uh, you know, as best as possible to keep the records you need according to whatever you're doing. Um, so I would definitely check uh, archive. A second thing you want to do is you want to keep yourself out of the digital databases. The less they know about you, the better, not for the purpose of avoiding taxes, but for the purpose of avoiding the gotcha software. So um, I sent to your assistant the link that we put up about um, uh, using cash. We have a campaign called Cash Every Day, and it's got a link to another thing called um, uh, using cash. There's another great link on our website on how to find a good local bank. But anything you can do to take your financial transaction ecosystem down to people you can trust of high integrity, whether it's your bank or your credit union or who you do business with, and stay out of the really big invasive digital system. You know, get as get as analog as you can. And I'm not saying don't you know don't use digital systems, but you as much as you can you can lower your presence in their databases the better um one of the reasons i i always tried to stay as far away from facebook and some of these other mm-hmm. companies because you just want to get you know go as analog as you can i want to mention something sure and I, I think it's important i was just at um meeting with a group of german and swiss subscribers and one of them was a very uh, knowledgeable and experienced economy who'd worked with many of the international organizations. And um, they said that Germany is working on reviving an old law that um, hopefully they would, they're hoping to pass in 2024. I've checked this with other people in Germany who say it's true, but I still need to do some more checking. So forgive me, take this with a grain of salt. Forgive me if I get some details wrong. And under this law, the government can essentially assign a mortgage of up to 50% loan to value to any German homeowner to pay. In this case, they're arguing that they want to pay for um, adverse vaccine reactions and health problems with the vaccinations. Um, But in theory, it could be anything. Mm -hmm. And so imagine waking up you have a home with no mortgage and suddenly you've got a 50% loan to value mortgage and you're having to pay the mortgage. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. Um, I think most people would definitely not like that. So that's pretty, um, yeah, that's pretty wild if true. Um, The reason, okay. So, so one of the links I want to recommend to your audience is, and I, again, I sent it to your assistant. It's at ourmoney.salary.com dot com slash taxation. So for many years, since 1998, I've been tracking $21 trillion that's gone missing from the U.S. government. And in 2017, I was joined by a wonderful scholar from Michigan State University, Mark Skidmore, who did a complete survey. And I had the number up to $12 trillion, and he and his students found another $11 trillion, got it up to $21 trillion. 
So I've been pounding the, the table about all the money that's been disappearing from the U.S. government because I knew a day would come when the government would say, oh, there's no money. And so we need to, uh, you know, we need to attach your home or we need to attach your 401k or we yeah. buy a super, you know. The was- so-called bail-in, I think they call right. it now, that sort of model where you basically are on the hook for their right. economic mismanagement. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I wanted to say, oh, you owe us $21 trillion. We're asserting a common law right of offset against whatever you say we owe you. <laughs> and, you know, and my ideal, I tell the story. If you go to that link, I tell the story of when I ended the litigation with the federal government. I had litigated with the Department of Justice over a common law right of offset that they had asserted. So I sent, at that time, I had the missing money up to $14,000 per person. And when we settled the litigation, I got a big settlement. I was paying off anybody who I owed money to. And I sent a note to one of the New York Fed member banks. I owed them $14,000 on a credit card. And I said, um, I owe you $14,000 on this credit card, but you owe me $14,000 because as depository, you know, as an agent for the depository and owner of the New York Fed, you've disappeared $14,000 per person from the U.S. government's bank accounts. So I'm asserting a common law right of offset. And I bet they didn't like that at all. Well, here was what was funny. So I said, you know, the name and number of my attorney is this, you know, and here's her mailing address. You know, if you have a problem with this, just contact my attorney and we'll negotiate or litigate, you know, whatever you want. We never heard another word and they wrote it off. Wow. Yeah. So so there are ways of of using that $21 trillion politically, and there are ways of organizing to push back. They're not simple or easy, um, as you know, because you you read that piece, so you have a sense of, you know, it can get complicated. Mm-hmm. But, but ultimately, the reason I think they went to taxes in the Inflation Reduction Act is that's where this has to go. If we keep paying a federal government, you know, extraordinary amounts of money, uh, the federal taxes is for many Americans their biggest investment every year. They pay an extraordinary amount of money. And if that money is being used for criminal purposes outside the financial management laws and outside the Constitution, and it's being spent in a way that harms them, harms their communities, as is the case with the green agenda in the Inflation Reduction Act, that's going to be very harmful to communities, in my opinion. So Mm -hmm. if we keep paying the money and they keep using it in harmful ways, at some point, we're going to say no we have to assert the law and we're not going to we're not going to give you these taxes you know there are many things we can do we can put them in escrow we're not going to let you you know we're not going to send you this money and do nothing if you just use it illegally or if you waste it so you know in in many respects waste is a bigger problem than than using it illegally um they know that day is coming at which point that's why they want to have 87,000 new software butts or IRS agents to come after us at taxes because they know we have grounds to come after them. They don't have grounds to come after us as much as we have grounds to go after them. So projective identification, you always want to attack the victim before they get a chance to attack you. So yeah. yeah, that's what it sounds like. Um to a, to a pretty significant degree. Uh, it's worth mentioning too, I think this preceded the Inflation Reduction Act, but this idea that the 
or policy that the IRS is going to scrutinize any transfer between people on on things like Venmo, PayPal, or I guess even between right. banks, that's over six hundred dollars. Um, right. Which I don't know if you're paying your landlord, for example, over Venmo, and your monthly rent is above six hundred dollars, which I think it is for most <laughs> Americans, probably. Um, you know, I guess you have to, you know, you're on the hook for that with the IRS now, or they're going to be yeah. looking at, at, at regular little people a lot more yeah, um, than they were before. They're trying to get all the banks to adopt all this software that, you know, defines and bifurcates what things are for and then puts all their data in the clouds. So they mm-hmm. can get this kind of invasive technology to do many different things, but one of them is enforcement. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so. You one thing you want to do is you want to be talking and understanding what your bank is doing with your data. Yeah, for sure. So, well, they they don't always tell you. And in the case of Bank of America, I think they turned it over with the January sixth stuff. They turned over bank records <laughs> to like the DHS or Capitol Police or something that was pretty much flagrantly Ill- illegal. Basically, acting as an appendage of you know the intelligence apparatus in the U.S. So they may be using your data in ways that you may not like. Uh, worth checking out and maybe worth considering changing banks. Um, one thing that you you touched on um, a little bit ago, I wanted to return to because as far as this eight, new eighty billion dollars for the IRS in in this new act, it's you know over a period of years. But one of the things that happens first in that period of years that ha- the IRS has to do within the next year is completely prepare and have ready to go for, I believe, next tax season, an e-filing system, which is related to the software stuff that you've been touching on. So um, why should Americans be concerned about a digital, uh, only digital uh, tax filing system? So my understanding, and I would defer to any CPA on this, but my understanding is then you know, you you create a system where they can interact directly with your bank account. So they know what your bank account is. You're paying them out of their bank account. They put your refund back in the bank account. Well, what that means is they can show up and take it out of your bank account. Um, and in fact, if you look at a lot of the online payment systems, um, when you click the terms and conditions, if you reach down into, I just tried to review a uh, uh, a new ACH system for Solari. And I ended up reading, um, it was 145 pages of terms and conditions. And on about the 140th page, what they suggested was their bank could go into my bank account. And if I was in, in any violation that they deemed in any law around the world, as they deemed no court, no court order, they could come into my bank account, take whatever amount they deemed was there, you know, they needed to protect themselves and keep it in their bank account for six months with no court order. It's mm-hmm. remarkable. You know, th- this concerns me in light of some, um, I guess, recent events and not so recent events that are related to this. So one would be the situation in, in China. I forget the name of the bank, but the bank basically committed a bunch of fraud and lost depositors' money. Um, and uh, people may have heard about this because, like, the um, vaccine passport for China, they were turning, like, allegedly turning the vaccine passports red for people that were protesting the bank um, and stuff. And basically only people that had a certain amount of money, relatively low amount of money in the bank will be getting their deposits back and people with more money will have to wait an unspecified amount of time. Uh, You know, so, you know, this is something going on in the banking system right now. Um, And, uh, 
what I mentioned earlier about, you know, I use the term bail in, uh, as far as I'm aware, the first implementation of that policy was in Cyprus, uh, a couple years ago, uh, where similar to what happened in China more recently, there was a bank fraud, uh, and instead of, you know, the bank being held responsible, depositors had the money that the bank was on the hook for. Uh -huh. it, it was taken out of depositors accounts. And right. that's what the bail-in is. They right. steal your money to cover the cost of their grift, basically. Right. Um, and they're setting up to do that. So yeah. Mm -hmm. set up the that's what it sounds like. So that they're able to do that. And, you know, a cyber attack like the gaming that we've seen go on is one possible justification. Totally. Right. Um, yeah. As, as my work on that is pointed out a lot with like cyber polygon and, and other stuff that the WEF is tied to, it's mainly focused on a cyber attack on the financial system. And that's probably the way they're going to go about it. They're going to, you know, we're seeing the shift with the IRS to move everything digital, make it all software that also makes it more vulnerable mm -hmm. um, to a cyber attack. And conveniently enough for them, they've been predicting cyber attack on the financial system, which will bring it to its knees essentially. And they've been doing that, you know, the, like the WEF, um, sorry, World Economic Forum, Partnership Against Cybercrime and stuff. You have like the FBI and other parts of the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, the U.K. government, uh, Israel's government, and, you know, some other agencies like that. You have cybersecurity companies, a lot of which, as I've noted in, in other reports in the past, are often tied, more often than not really, to intelligence agencies. And right. then you have the big banks, and these are the people in the partnership against cybercrime stuff that are doing these cyber simulations, uh, cyber attack simulations, and it's all about the financial system. Uh, you know, how convenient that uh, <laughs> that's their focus and not on, you know, I mean, they've talked about critical infrastructure being attacked and some of this other stuff and, you know, some other more out there scen scenarios and stuff, but it seems to be routinely focused on that. And you have a lot of central banks involved in some of these cyber attack simulations as well, which is also, I think, pretty significant and telling. And, you know, as we've, um, well, mainly you, uh, been been fleshing out, you know, uh, right now, it seems like this is the direction where, you know, that they're sort of laying the groundwork to prepare for that sort of eventuality. Because part of the, um, I did a report on this uh, a couple, I guess, last year. Uh, one of the ways they're preparing for this apparently um, in inevitable attack on cyber attack on the financial system is having all these uh, banks basically come together in different consortiums where they decide behind the scenes and among themselves what they will do um, if if and when that cyber attack or crash induced by a cyber attack materializes. So they're planning for it <laughs> is basically what that means. Um, we just don't know the details of, of those plans. Let me bring up a couple of things. First, I wanted to say I sent a link to your assistant um, on an article called using cash. And at the bottom, there's a video interview I did with um, Polly, Tommy, and our general counsel on where to stash your cash in 2022. So if you're worried about the money that you have in banks, and I have a great bank and I'm happy to have money in it, you know, I need money to transact, but there are plenty of ways of, you know, stashing cash around your life without using the banking system that make you much more resilient and protect you. So I would encourage you to watch those links. Um, one reason to really spend time moving your cash out outside the system is because um, if you, uh, again, one of the links I sent was to our Cash Everyday campaign, 
One of the videos is one I know you've seen, which is the head of the BIS in 56 seconds explaining that what they want to do is introduce CBDC, which will give them complete, you know, you will have zero privacy and they will have complete control. And so if they're where they're going with all the things we're talking about is to a financial system where if they don't want you to be able to spend money, you know, more than five miles from your home, your money won't work more than five miles from your home. Now, this yeah. requires a smart grid and all digital system, you know, but they want complete control. And that means they can tax without representation. They decide they want to double taxes. They just do and take it out of your account. So, the you know, it's hard for many people to fathom that where they want to go is this nuts, but it is. And the reason I love that video of um, the head of the BIS is it explains it so clearly. There's also another video in there from Richard Werner, who's the top global scholar on um, on central bank. And he um, he basically describes, again, they want to go to this complete control system. So um, these guys really see an all digital system as the way to give them complete control of financial tractions, transactions, and all sorts of other aspects of our life, you know, which means stripping us of real assets, whether it's our land, it's our gold, or it's our kids. So, mm-hmm. um, this is as bad as it looks. And that's why it's incredibly important that we all sort of walk out of the system. And one way to do it is check out all the ideas and where to stash your cash in 2022. It's again, it's the video and using cash. And there, you know, if we all just start doing this, Whitney, it's, a, you know, it's miraculous how much we can walk the system back to analog. There was a, I don't know if you saw the story, there was a bank in Ireland that tried to cancel cash. And there was an absolute revolution and they had to roll it back in 24 hours. I mean, they nice. were, they were, that yeah, God's good news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I just got, a, I'm here in Switzerland and I just got a report on, you know, somebody tried to do something similar in terms of canceling one of the bigger bills and bam, <laughs> you know, they got it <laughs> in the eyes and they had to roll it back. So this can be rolled back, but only, you know, part of, part of rolling it back is helping people see you know, how completely psychotic where they want to go is. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's where you and, and, and a whole group of us come in. That's what we're trying to do is help people get out of the control grid because we're all going to be much better individually and collectively. If we just, you know, let's walk out of the corral before they slam the gate shut. Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, So in in talking about this new financial system they're planning for, um, you know, and how the IRS changes are part of that. The other main part, you could argue, of the Inflation Reduction Act is on uh, the accelerating the transformation to a green economy. Yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, if you think about it in terms of what that really means, it's pretty clear that the goal here is also total control. And and one of the main, I guess you could say, missing pieces of that, um, one of my last podcasts was with Patrick Wood talking about technocracy, yeah. how the origins of that movement were about measuring people's energy usage. Yep. yep. And that's essentially, you know, what this green economy, uh, as it's being designed by bankers and billionaires and people like that, is going to be all about really. And if you think about it, restricting or limiting your energy usage, um, 
you know, based on, you know, you being not part of the elite, it's obviously going to be how, as, as it's being set up like a neo-feudal system where the people basically designing it are going to be immune from these limits and the rest of us will not be. Um, cause they already are basically functioning that way with their private jets while also pontificating right. about how we can't eat meat or drive cars and, and stuff like that. But if you're restricting people's energy usage, you're restricting their economic activity essentially, uh-huh. um, you know, how productive they can be, how much they can do, also how many children families can have, among other things. Right. And if you're combining, you know, energy usage with finances, with currency, and mixing it all together, which is essentially what this is is going to do as, you know, as it's being developed, um, you know, it's, it's very unsettling, to say the least. It's, um, you know, so there's a lot of things we can get into, you know, just about that in general or what's in uh, the act in general. I don't know if you want to uh, comment before I talk about some of the specific stuff in, well, in this what, bill. What you've got is a series of cap and trade, tax credits, green credit and loans, a green bank. And what it is is a phenomenally expensive and wasteful system that directs capital into a neighborhood and allows you know, instead of people in that local area being free to simply develop things in an open market, you know, it drives in taxpayer financed money to give you top down control. It's phenomenally wasteful. Let me let me just tell you a couple of stories. And um, uh, God, I, you have to understand, I have there are more stories in the naked city. You know, it's eight million stories in the naked city. And I know eight million because I worked it. At <laughs> Um, yeah. Uh, uh, in 1996, I took out to dinner someone who worked for the public housing department in HUD um, because they were spending $250,000 to rehab or build public housing in neighborhoods where 50000 could buy a foreclosed property and fix it up. And so you could get five homes for the price of one, given how much they were spending. And I showed her the data, you know, we were doing place-based data, and I showed her the data on neighborhoods in Chicago, in New Orleans, and and I think it was Los Angeles. And I said, look, you know, we could get five, four or five homes for the price of one. She turned bright red and looked at me and she said, but how would we generate fees for our friends? And I I said, well, if you just gave your friends 50,000 and let us do three or four homes, you know, the world would be better off. <laughs> anyway, but, but this is a very, you know, this is the green energy equivalent of that. And words cannot express to you how expensive and sort of, you know, Soviet, as in, you know, the 1970s kind of Soviet pro- projects it is. And it's exceptionally harmful to, you know, to healthy local economics. I'll give you another example. When in the 90s, I was working on helping local governments uh, and local sort of small business and farm groups basically start venture capital pools for their local economy and basically build the equivalent of a venture capital or stock market locally where, you know, people in the community through their 401ks and IRAs could buy stock in a pool of the local small businesses and you know, the economics were fantastic and really encouraged productivity. And um, we had started doing financing the first venture pool in a low income neighborhood. And um, I had 
uh, lunch with the general counsel for the authorizing committee um, in the House that kind of oversaw this kind of activity, and they were doing the low-income housing tax credits. And he looked at me and he said, look, let me tell you how it is. We will not allow private market activities in these neighborhoods. The only capital that will be allowed to go in is corporate capital through the tax, low-income housing tax credits and the HUD, you know, the HUD financing, and it's all going to be controlled top down. So don't try and do market things in this neighborhood because it's not going to be permitted. Okay. So this is all about top-down control and it dovetails with the smart grid because all of this quote unquote clean energy is designed to produce an all electrical system, which will allow them to build an all digital transaction system that will give them digital control. So let me explain what they're building here. First of all, this, this energy will not be economic, but what they're building here, Whitney, are digital concentration camps. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about energy that will be top-down controlled, money put in, funded with the taxpayers' money, top-down control. It's going to build a smart grid. This is why all the semiconductor companies are building billions and billions of dollars of plants, because you need massive amount. You're going to chip everything that moves in America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is digital concentration camps, because once they can can get the digital systems and everywhere, get everybody on electrical cars, get everything censored, you know, as an S-E-N-S-O-R censored. Yeah, have everything with a sensor stuck to it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and have everything chipped. That's when they can they can put in the last, you know, it's like closing the gate on the digital control corral and turning it into a digital concentration camp. Mm-hmm. So, so basically what the what this is about and inflation reduction is is an appropriate name because if you can control, you know, if you can move every human in America into a digital concentration camp and basically empty their bank account anytime you want and tell them what they can and cannot spend money on, you've got complete control. It's it will reduce inflation. The, you know, if you <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> I see what you're saying, but I mean, yeah. if you can well, want to lower the money supply, just delete all their digital money in their accounts. Yeah, that'll reduce. Yeah, it. but I think the idea of the act is, you know, most Americans and polling and stuff before midterms, right? Concerned about inflation. So what do we name this act that we've been wanting to pass? So it sounds nice to people, the Inflation Reduction Act, right? right. Um, but yeah, I guess in the way you're talking about too, yeah, it would reduce inflation by enslaving the whole populace. <laughs> but I, I don't know if they necessarily meant the name uh, in that in that sense, though, it would be more honest. We, we don't um, call it bankrupting people, you know, so I was trained to be a central banker. We call it deflation destruction. <laughs> That's what COVID-19, Fauci ran a deflation destruction, or a, 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 yeah, it's a, basically you generate deflation you know, by destroying demand. So it's demand destruction, uh, you know, and it's very deflationary. Mm-hmm. It's very gruesome. Depopulation destroys demand. It does. And so does uh, forcing businesses to close um, and, and you know, numerous other things that were enacted during that period of time. So I wanted to touch on some of the stuff you were talking about a little bit ago about, you know, how the, the energy stuff plays into this. Um in terms of top-down control. And I think really the whole push to renewables, you know, considering the people that are pushing for this, you know, mm-hmm. billionaires uh, on a lot of occasions, I think this is sort of like um, 
think of the Rockefellers, for example, a hundred years ago with a basic, you know, monopoly over the main energy uh, used in the U.S. on oil uh, through Standard Oil and stuff like that. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing here, when you think about oil as being sort of like the fuel of, of the global economy, well, sometimes it can be a wild card. What if someone in an oil rich nation comes to power that doesn't want to play along, for example, right? or wants to uh, peg their currency to oil and make, you know, a petro insert name of currency uh, here that challenges, for example, the petrodollar or something like that. It's not necessarily when it's a, a physical resource in a particular geographic location, the power structure in that geographic location, for example, can be subject to change and, you know, things like that. Uh, what you do, what I, what I see happening here is that, um, you're having certain companies and certain groups, um, really not that many of them, if you think about it, being the money and who will become the owners of the production of all the renewables. And they will be, it's, it's not like a decentralized thing where we think of, oh, you can put a solar panel on your house and right. be off grid. I think that will be not allowed going forward. And there will just be these centralized plants of solar and wind energy all owned by these guys. And a lot of when I say these guys, I mean, if you look at into it, it's it's billionaires like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, uh, BlackRock, you know, all of these names that I think more Americans have become familiar with in the in the COVID era and exactly, you know, like what <laughs> what they're what they're angling at. But it seems like to me can complete control over the energy source and thus of the economy by, you know, taking monopolizing control of of energy. Um, well, here's, there, there are a couple things going on. One is you've been able to provide um, a, a certain level of standard of living to the Western populations mm -hmm. because you've been able to print fiat money out of thin air and swap it for real oil and gas. Yeah. And now that the people with real oil and gas saying we're not going to, you know, we're not going to take your money anymore because it's, you know, you're debasing the currency too quickly and we won't do that we're better off keeping the oil and gas and making you use our currency they can't provide that subsidy so part of it is they just need to to you know to cut that subsidy the second part and we'll just have to see what happens to know for sure but they have for many years had alternative technologies sure mm -hmm. but they don't want to bring those technologies out unless they have complete control Right. Well, that that came up, you know, I think uh, several people, many people are probably familiar with, you know, the Nikola Tesla story of how JP Morgan funded him and he made basically a device that generated electricity from basically nothing from the magnetic field of, of the earth, if I'm not mistaken. And JP Morgan pulled the plug because he's like, I can't make money off that. Right. But if you have smart grid and you have everybody in a digital concentration camp, you can make money on that. If mm -hmm. you know where you make the most money on that? You don't make the money from the energy. You make the money on the capital gains on the real estate. And I believe one of the reasons I'm convinced they're going to roll out breakthrough energy at some point is they're doing everything they can to get control and ownership as much real estate as possible. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. So breakthrough energy catalyst is something that I wanted to talk about uh, because it's it's Gates, Bezos, BlackRock, Boston Consulting, and a whole bunch of these other guys. But a lot of those same guys have become the largest owners, you know, in Gates' case, the largest owner of private farmland in the U.S. Uh, right. BlackRock is, is, you know, has become notorious, right. especially in the past couple of years for the extent to which they're buying up 
real right. estate. And, you know, uh, I think even some guy connected to BlackRock was in Bloomberg talking about how the U.S. must become a nation of renters and stuff like this, you know, like it, it, it's it's pretty out in in the open. And at the same time, they're the ones, you know, behind this, this particular vehicle. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit because, you know, Bill Gates is the guy that founded this before I talk about what it is, I guess, a little mm-hmm. in a little more detail. And he has been taking credit for the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act because of his influence on Joe Manchin. Mm-hmm. which I guess is the, the Democrat from West Virginia who is often a swing vote in certain matters. Anyway, he he also wrote in the New York Times, we're on the verge of a remarkable moment for Congress and the country, uh, talking about the the push to um, you know pass the Inflation Reduction Act. And in that op-ed piece for the New York Times, I mean, he just, he calls it uh, the single most important piece of climate legislation in American history. Um, And uh, that should really disturb people because remember, this is a guy that claims publicly to care about public health, um, while at the same time he's heavily promoted the so-called green revolution of Monsanto crops uh, going to the third world, which ends up creating a debt suicide cycle in places like India for farmers. Um, that's, that's just totally awful. Um, and then a guy that claims to care about public health, but his, you know, vaccine Alliance, Gavi openly says it doesn't care about public health. It cares about the health of vaccine markets, (laughs) uh, you know, so this is a guy who you should look at his actions more than his words. And so when he says stuff like this, you should know that he's going to profit from this and that's why he's trying to sell it to you. And it's not necessarily going to benefit you. It's going to benefit him if, you know, the pattern holds, which I think it does here. And it turns out, um, some of the policies in here, and you mentioned it a, a little bit ago, the national green bank that this creates, um, in, let's see, what outlet is this? Uh, from Fortune Magazine, talking about um, the Inflation Reduction Act and the little discussed, uh, it, it's a, the title is, this little discussed provision in the Inflation Reduction Act just established the world's largest green lending program. Wonder why that hasn't gotten more play. Um, anyway, it says the National Green Bank will partner with the private sector and community lenders probably controlled by the corporate sector, to invest in clean energy technologies and energy efficiency improvements. Um, And it calls uh, what's been in this bill, included in this bill, the quote, largest amount of funds dedicated to public private investment in clean energy in the world. And that's pretty significant. So what is breakthrough energy? It's called Breakthrough Energy uh, Catalyst. Gates created it in 2015, and he's since gone around uh, to a lot of his billionaire pals securing investments uh, for, you know, uh, basically creating the clean energy of tomorrow, they say. Um, From Microsoft, BlackRock, General Motors, American Airlines, Boston Consulting, Bank of America, um, and also the U.S. Department of Energy and uh, the European Commission, there's the public and the public-private partnership there. Um, And basically what you're having in this situation is that, as it looks to me, uh, Breakthrough Energy is set to receive a lot of funds from this new lending mechanism in the Inflation Reduction Act or from the National uh, Green Bank. It seems like it's going that way. And at the same time, while these guys, you know, are going to be making the investments, they'll become owners of a lot of these more centralized, quote unquote, renewable energy plants and, and factories that they they hope to have pop up 
sooner rather than later. And at the same time, uh, a lot of these same characters are um, part, basically um, backing a, a company called Cobalt Metals, which uh-huh. is uh, trying to use AI to basically identify and then take control of uh, the the mine, the, like the mineral deposits necessary for electric vehicles and a lot of this other yeah. stuff. Right. Um, and this isn't stuff they're just doing in the third world anymore. A lot of the land that's going to be exploited uh, by cobalt metals is in Canada. <laughs> it's in Quebec. It's in yeah. Saskatchewan, and it's in Ontario. Um, so one of the reasons I would love to see, uh, a combination of the rule of law and, uh, and prototyping and, and the market doing breakthrough energy is because there is a wide variety of technologies that have been available for a long, long time and deserve, you know, deserve to be tried. So I, I, one of the links I provided to your assistant is the reason I live in the Netherlands is I was originally came here in 2012 uh, by a group that was doing conferences on breakthrough energy. And I just sent you a link to their website and they have, you know, scores of presentations from conferences during, they had one in 2012, 2013, 2016, 2019 of, you know, lots of different entrepreneurs talking about lots of different technologies. And if you look at at what's happening in material sciences and what's happening in the sciences, there's a lot of potential here to dramatically reduce the cost of energy. One of the challenges for anybody trying to govern countries or, you know, govern the financial system is how do we dramatically lower the energy price without you know, being more negative to the environment that we are in many ways in many places. So there mm-hmm. are more legitimate questions. This and and how do you bring this technology out without it being dangerously weaponized? So so this is a big topic and it's a complex topic, but I would really recommend if you're interested that you dive into the breakthrough energy um, global BEM. It was very interesting because they used the name first and then when Gates did that group he uh took it. He, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. And what was interesting is they had a young guy who apparently was helping them who came and sort of, you know, uh, you know, just did complete debriefing of the guys who ran Global BIM. And then, you know, right after that, bam, they came out with something that, you know, looked the same and, and used a lot of the stuff. Anyway, but but there's a lot of good information about this. And there are a lot of very important questions that need to be asked. If you look at what they're going to finance through the green bank, from what I could read of the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, it's a lot of non-very exciting stuff. Um, I don't know if you've seen Planet of the Humans or Headwind 21. There's some good documentaries that show you how incredibly wasteful some of the renewable energy that is being used, uh, you know, how how terribly wasteful it is. Um, and I, I would encourage people to watch that. There was one um, one person I wanted to bring up, Whitney. Um, mm-hmm. One of the people who's done the best job of documenting how wasteful these big federal financing programs are that sort of intercede and, and give top-down control to local economies is it's a group called Strong Towns run by a guy named Chuck Marone on the Salier Report. I did a couple of great interviews with him. He's got a couple of good books. And his organization, Strong Towns, is all about building strong towns, really, with real economics. 
And he did, he, he started Strong Towns when he got hired by a town in Louisiana. Um, and they, there was a fight on the city council about whether they were going to bring in another big government grant. And Chuck helped one of the city council members. He was hired to do the economics. And here's what he said. He said, the average real estate taxes in this town was $1,500 a year. It was a town in Louisiana. If they simply maintained the proper maintenance of all the government grant funded projects that they'd installed, they would have to raise the average tax bill to 8500 And huh. what, what he said was the government money pouring into infrastructures in that town had so surpassed what made sense for the private economy to build it, that they were basically going to have to let most of the stuff fall into, to, you know, into, you know, poor repair. And he described, you know, this is part of what happened to Detroit. He said, Detroit's just going first. They're just having to walk away. Now I live in a town where a lot of our driveways are dirt, you know, <laughs> we never bothered to spend the money to, you know, upgrade the infrastructure, but, what has happened is you've poured so much of this sort of top-down Soviet money into local economies and you've created a whole infrastructure of stuff they can't use and doesn't make economic sense. And that is a that is a situation that's coming to a head. Now, if you did use a lot of breakthrough energy to lower the energy price in a way that built the local economy, you know, that could help, but that's not what this looks like to me at all. It's just more, you know, another piece of using our money to build the digital control grid. And when they closed the gates with CBDC, again, we're talking about yeah. digital concentration camps. And that is not an exaggeration. I don't use that term lightly. Yeah. So the reason I bring up like cobalt metals and some of this other stuff is is because I see it as, as Gates, Bezos, and, and this whole group that pop up through these different ventures uh seem like they're building the infrastructure for this whole economic system themselves and they're they're planning to be the owners of it which means you know they they lack all the way to the bank essentially you're trying to take the economic footprint of the average person down to as small as you can you know the question uh remaining is are they trying to depopulate as well but you're trying to take the footprint down and you know possibly it looks like they may be trying to depopulate um, certainly, you know, I call what's happened since 1996, the great poison. It looks to me like they're lowering life expectancies. I don't know if you saw this in 2000, between 2019 and 2020, the life expectancy in America dropped 1.8 years on average. That's a huge drop in one year. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Anyway, so, so they're trying to take the economic footprint down. They're trying to probably take the population sort of life expectancy down and then they're trying to assert complete control of resources for a very small group. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, what, what concerns me too, and I think a lot of people have this on their radar at this point, are you know these food and energy crisis uh, crises that they've sort of set up. To um, looks like it's going to start hitting in a bigger way than it is now anyway next year. Um, and I think if I'm not mistaken on uh, the last money in markets you did with uh, John Titus, um, you were talking about the possibility that they're going to be switching these, you know, they're going to have the food and energy crisis financially squeeze people. And then that's going to alleviate for a little bit. And then they're going to go back to the pandemic 
model and vacillate between them. Can you uh, explain that a little bit? Yeah. So I always take my, we're not on video, so I can't do it, but I take my hands and while one's down, the other's up. And then while the other, you know, the other comes up and the other goes down. And that's, it's, that's how you keep the frog in the pot as it gets hotter. You know, you, you put the pedal to the metal on healthcare tyranny, but then you back off on finance. Then you, you pull off the healthcare tyranny as they have the summer and bam, you hit the financial repression and they're just going back and forth between them. And it's a very, it's a very, very clever control tactic. And it's keeping people confused because the healthcare people think, ah, you know, it's getting better. And they don't see the, you know, in the meantime, the financial play. Now it all comes down into people's expenses. So they see that, but it's, it's remarkably clever. And, and my concern is if you look behind the scenes, they're getting ready to do a new round of healthcare repression while they yeah. don't on the financial repression this probably this fall and winter so yeah we'll see what happens this fall and winter because they're they're already really really setting up for a big vaccination drive um with a new vaccine specifically this moderna one uh the bivalent one the one that's supposedly for omicron and BioNTech and pfizer have a candidate they're shopping around uh two that's supposedly been, been retooled but even less testing uh, than the COVID vaccines in their original form, which was already scandalously low in terms of like safety t- testing and other stuff. I mean, a lot of people have have covered that. And so this is significantly less than that for these um, new vaccines being rolled out in the fall that have been updated in ways that have not been stu- in the case of Moderna, which I I've written about, I haven't really looked into the Pfizer one. Um, only Moderna has run in a still unfinished clinical trial, no independent study of the new vaccine. And, you know, it's already been approved in the UK and it's uh, set to be approved in Chile based on the way they're talking about it here. And I'm sure uh, the FDA will follow suit. And so will most of the other, you know, uh, quote unquote, regulatory agencies uh, for health products around the world. Uh, That's very disconcerting, but I mean, they're planning to, you know, the, the way they've um, openly talked uh, in, in the past couple of years of getting people to take the vaccine is either through fear or it's through um, restrictive measures like right. vaccine passports and things like that, that create an, an unfair, unconstitutional incentive to force people to submit to experimental injections. Right. Um, and I, it seems like that, you know, if they don't get enough people to roll up their sleeve for, through fear, they'll go back to that model. And maybe they'll just do both anyway. Um, you know, it remains to be seen. But they're, they're setting up for it in a lot of countries uh, already, this, this stuff for the fall. We'll see what happens. There was one thing I wanted to mention to you before we close. I just wrote an article um, called, Does the BIS Owe Us $21 Trillion? And oh. <laughs> it, it it comes down to, and this is in thanks in part thanks to John Titus's work. I believe that the Bank of International Settlements was one of the primary launderers of stealing the twenty-one trillion. So the New York Fed is the depository for the U.S. government, and it it looks to me like one possibility was the New York Fed moved the money into the BIS because it joined the BIS in nineteen ninety-four after many decades of declining to join but the Federal Reserve joined. And so they move it into the BIS and then you can send it around the world or, you know, send it to the BIS. But then the question is, how do you bring it back? 
And one of my questions is, did did Clinton, Epstein and Gates get in the jet and run around to these different countries and say, OK, if we send 100 million to you, will you send 80 million back for the Clinton Foundation or the Gates Foundation? And then you get to keep 20 as your fee. And so the question is, how do you bring it back? And Very possible. Um, you know, well, y- you've read my book and I've talked some about it, but, you know, Epstein's role in, in the Clinton and, and Gates foundations is really significant. And there's a lot of interaction on the specific programs that Epstein is alleged to have, you know, designed for them uh, between the Gates and Clinton Foundation. Like they interact a lot, specifically on like health issues, um, among among other things. And, uh, you know, it's it's really concerning. And there there's a lot to come out there. And I couldn't even find it all. I was um, sort of left dumbfounded uh, at the time I was sort of um, wrapping up the book because I was reading through this testimony Epstein gave in 2012 in relation to this company that he wanted to basically have. He described it as a biomedical Google, and he wanted to basically market genomic data of regular people to big pharma, uh, which is pretty crazy. But in there, he talked about you know he, that he does all this work in Africa, and he had no presence in Africa officially. So, you know, from what we know about his relationship with the Clinton Foundation, Gates Foundation, it was probably through those foundations that this substantial work in Africa, as he said, well, he said lots of work in Africa, I think is the direct quote that was coming through that. And he says after that, uh, that Africa is, is, uh, you know, one of the best places to experiment. It's like a great place to experiment basically on the populace. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty insane. And, um, circling back a little bit on that, uh, something that's relevant to that and the inflation reduction act that I see is this extreme focus on a lot of this the stuff green finance green banking googly guck is it they focus it all they say over and over again low income communities and to me you know that i think what they're trying to do there is sort of signal like oh we're prioritizing the low income communities for this great benefit but it's as we've talked about not a great benefit and these are the communities that have the least voice right and so yeah. when you're talking about you know something like Epstein the Clinton Foundation I, I would argue that one of the reasons he liked you know claimed that it was such a good place to experiment is for similar reasons the people there are are essentially you know voiceless on the international stage at the end of the day um, and also they have underdeveloped infrastructure for some stuff, which means you can come in and build the infrastructure however you want and see what happens. Right. So so your biggest capital gain opportunity is in a low-income community. It depends on what you do and how you do it. But you go and you pick up the real estate cheap, you clean people out, then you bring in government money to improve the infrastructure and your properties, and then you bring in new people. And And so the capital gain opportunity is extraordinary. And you run into less sort of obstacles and you've cleaned out. Remember there's a whole bunch of those neighborhoods you've cleaned out with the riots and other things during COVID you've destroyed all those small businesses. And that makes it much easier to move in and pick things up cheap with government money. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm sure you're right about that. Well, I, I tend to think I am, but I don't want to be right about any of this stuff. I would, I would really like to believe them about climate change, but I just, you know, it just doesn't stack up because I I said this when I was on an interview recently, you know, we're, we're told by these people, people like Bill Gates, 
that the, the, the greatest environmental crisis that we are currently facing is carbon dioxide. But Gates is the largest private landowner, I guess, of farmland, maybe of land period in the U.S. right now. Why doesn't he reforest it if it's all about carbon dioxide? And that's the real threat. Instead, it's supposed to be carbon taxes, carbon markets, and all this other stuff is going to somehow reduce an environmental crisis instead of reforesting small-scale organic agriculture and the stuff that even people on the left know would make sense in terms of restoring environmental health. Instead, it's just a new financial game. I mean, I really hope people specifically on the left start to you know, wake up to that because these are the people that you on the left were protesting in 2008 with like Occupy Wall Street and stuff, um, or people that have financed uh, environmental destruction all over the world or covered it up or whatever, um, or in the case of Bill Gates, people that promoted the most some of the most environmentally destructive com- uh, companies in the entire history of the world, like Monsanto, are the people telling you how to save the planet by giving them complete control of your life. I mean, it's just nuts. If you look at the environmental waste and and energy waste of digital technology, the way it's been developed so far, you know, it's arguably, you know, if you combine it with the digital telecommunications, it's, you know, one of the most harmful things that's ever happened to the planet. But let, let me say it this way. One of the reasons I love your two books is you make it, you break through the trance of people thinking that America is run by anything other than organized crime. You know, we're looking, I always tell people who like the James Bond, you know, movies, we're being run by Spectre, okay? We're dealing with Spectre. (laughs) Yeah, basically. And and one of the things Spectre has done a fantastic job of is coming up with cover stories that keep people somehow wishing and hoping that there's a legitimacy somewhere in that model. And if they just play along, it'll be okay. And I've spent my entire life hanging out. You know, I spent most of my life hanging out with the predators. And one of the things I saw was every year they would get more emboldened because they couldn't believe they were getting away with it. They couldn't believe they, you know, they couldn't believe the lies worked. They couldn't believe the entrainment worked. And they finally just, you know, and and as they got away with more and more and more, what would happen is they would get more and more emboldened. And as they got more and more emboldened and it worked, they would just disrespect the people that they could trick. And it has reached the point where they no longer consider the general population, you know, human. They, they don't, they think of themselves as a separate species because they've been able to get away with so much and they have lost all respect. And that's the cycle of disrespect that has to be, you know, has to be uh, reversed. And it starts with people saying, you know, there's nothing legitimate here. All these fairy tales, you know, climate change is a fairy tale. COVID-19 is a fairy tale. They're all just Mr. Global fairy tales. And either we start to break through the trance and look at the way the world is, where real solutions can emerge. There are plenty of real solutions. We could talk mm-hmm. to the Calcum home about real solutions, but there will be no real solutions until we walk through the doorway of the kind of doorway that your book is providing and saying, there's no legitimacy here. These guys are not, there's nothing legitimate here. Stop pretending it's legitimate because it's only going to get worse if we keep pretending. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. Um, 
there's a lot I could say about about that stuff, considering I, you know, wrote two books on it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's it's very concerning because basically you get to the point researching and reading about this stuff and, and you're like, you know, someone who's writing about this stuff professionally, I there's so many documents I don't have access to and I don't even live in the U.S. anymore. So I don't necessarily like I can't do some of the stuff that like reporters on the ground could do maybe about looking into some stuff or going to ask for records at places that don't allow you to do that online and and all of this stuff. But it's just so apparent there has to be an official investigation. But at the same time, it's very clear that the government is completely 100 percent incapable of investigating itself in any capacity. I have a list for you. We don't need an official investigation. We just need to act. Yeah, I think I think that's fair, but to really get to the bottom of what happened and a lot of or what's happening and a lot of this stuff, you know, there's there has there, there's some stuff that I can, you know, say piece together and be like this is what it looks like is going on, you know, but it's just it's hard sometimes. It, but the, you know, the government can't investigate itself. And what do we do in a situation where it's just so run amok and so delegitimate, like illegitimate um that we what do we do in that situation? That's the discussion I think we have to have. Yeah, so I want you to listen to the um, the thing I'm about to record this afternoon with Pete Kennedy on the agenda for your state legislators, because there are a lot of state legislators who can, you know, can do enough from a governmental stand, a standpoint that private citizens can do the rest. There's a lot that can be done, but it it first requires you to break through that trance and realize, oh, you know, the federal government has has now moved so far away from um, particularly the financial management laws that, you know, as long as we keep spending enormous amounts of money that they can then spend outside the law, you know, there are no solutions that has to be dealt with. So, um, I, you know, I don't know, Whitney, I continue to be an optimist because I see so many ways of turning this around. Well, yeah, I I feel that way, too. One thing I, I thought of while you were talking about how these people, you know, look at us as, as basically subhuman is that, you know, they've gotten away with it for so long. I think they've become so complacent that we're just going to continue using the, the existing control stuff that's tech based that they have on us, have us in our digital corrals, stay on social media, vent on there, never organize in person, uh, carry our smartphones with us everywhere we go. So we are easily surveilled, be so dependent on the convenience and comfort afforded to by the status quo and all of that stuff that people will never break out of it. And I think, you know, once people do start to break out of it in mass, I don't think they'll know what to do because I think a lot of the, the control stuff, they're already so dependent on digital stuff and us willingly being led that way through our dependence on the technology they've created, which, you know, in the hands of, someone not criminally insane could do a lot for (laughs) society, but unfortunately the situation is what it is. And, you know, the more people that break out of that digital dependence, uh, the better off we are because I think they've really overplayed their hand in assuming that people are just going to stay on uh, these platforms and be so dependent on these technologies uh, that they can just easily hurt us where they want to take us. Right. So I guess that makes me an optimist, too, because I think people will eventually do that. Um, I hope. <laughs> but you never know, I, I guess. I will eventually do that, and I don't underestimate the harm and pain that can can be caused in the meantime. Um, I would just really encourage everyone not to get overwhelmed by the big picture and realize 
millions of people taking tiny actions can make all the difference. So, you know, walk back to the analog system, use cash every day. You know, there, there are thousands of things, you know, care who you bank with and what institutions you do business with. You know, if enough of us do that, I used to have a friend who ran for governor in the state of Tennessee, and he said, you know, you think a snowflake is powerless and fragile until you realize enough of them get together and they could shut down New York City. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I'm, I don't know, I'm, uh, it's my nature to be an optimist and um, because I know how much, if citizens will simply move their money, if enough of them will move, how dramatic the change could be. Yeah, I think it's it's going to have to come to a point where people are willing to leave that convenience behind and form new habits uh, for things to really change. And I hope that point comes soon. But I think more people uh, than ever are pretty wise to it. But I do think that even a lot of people that know a lot about this stuff or, uh, you know, following reliable independent media and things like that, you know, there is a tendency sort of to give over uh, to fear, but fear is their greatest tool to control us, right? And that's why so much of the the stuff with COVID uh, was fear-based because when people are in a state of fear, they're easier to control. Even if you intellectually are opposed to them, against them, and well-informed, you know, if you're super afraid of them, at the end of the day, you're giving them a lot more power over you than you otherwise would be. So let me give you, let's close with two little secret sauce ideas. Ooh, <laughs> I love secret sauce. <laughs> if we pull the plug on the sovereign immunity game, they're playing through the BIS, which I think we can. I think this thing unravels to a remarkable degree. That's number one. The second thing is, um, if you look at uh, at sort of how the money works right now, they've been able to run a highly inefficient economy, you know, printing huge amounts of money because they, you know, they could play the fiat currency for energy game. They can't do that now. You know, maybe they can do it if they can bring out breakthrough energy, but I don't see that happening soon, which means the secret sauce here is if we ran the economy in an efficient way, the wealth potential is enormous. There is no reason for poverty. There is no reason for suffering. We have all the wealth we need if we grow up culturally. It can be done. So there's, you know, everybody's got this deprivation mentality that, you know, there's not enough resources or money. I beg to differ unless there's some sort of, you know, huge geophysical event that's coming I don't know about. And I'm not saying I know everything, but um, the secret sauce is if we ran the economy in a healthy way, there's plenty for everybody. There is no reason for poverty or suffering. You know, the economy can work. So, and, and that's because tyranny is phenomenally successful. So if you end tyranny, you create lots and lots of wealth. So and 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 pulling the BIS sovereign immunity and creating that wealth are two sort of very magical to me secret sauce. All right. Well, I guess we'll we'll uh, close it out there then. Let people mull over the secret sauce ideas and the other things that we discussed today. Um, but I really would encourage people. There is still a lot going on with with COVID, obviously, and it does look like they're going to bring back the pandemic stuff. But I think I just I just am concerned that, you know, in independent media specifically, I feel like the attention to what is really going on under the guise of climate change 
and and this banking stuff and natural asset corporations that I wrote about last year in these efforts to securitize like the natural world, including the world's oceans and and stuff like that. I mean, this stuff in financialized nature, this is moving ahead at at rapid speed. And I know very few people who talk about it. Right. And independent media. And I think it really does need a lot more um, attention because that to me is a major environmental threat when you are securitizing the natural world in the in the environment. I, I see that, uh, you know, uh, predatory bankers and billionaires going after that and trying to turn that into something they can trade all about and, you know, grift from that that's dangerous. And it's dangerous, not just from that sense, but, you know, for us as a society and the control system that is intimately connected to this, and I just don't see enough coverage of it. So I really hope, you know, if you have a favorite a content creator out there, maybe, you know, prod them to consider <laughs> looking into this stuff because I mean, it's, it's really overwhelming the amount of stories there. Could you send me to like two or three sentences of what you think needs exactly to be covered and let me see what I can do. Yeah, sure. I just, you know, in, in general, it's basically just about the stuff going on in climate change. It's all these financial gimmicks. It's right. nothing, you know, when we think about uh, for for example, when I was in like college, I was sort of into like I, I double majored and one of my majors was like an ecology biology stuff. And I spent a, I was really concerned about the environment. This is like 10 years ago, I guess. Uh, and I was thinking a lot about, you know, I was reading a lot of the, the books that were, I guess, popular in that field at the time. And it was all about how factory farming's bad. We have to move to like small scale you know, organic agriculture, everyone can garden. And instead, what we have right now is a society that is like telling, ordering people to pull out their vegetable gardens, or trying to send Amish farmers to prison for having organic farms, and stuff like that. And what is supposed to be a, a giant um, planetary planet altering environmental crisis. Why are you going after the organic farmers? Uh, why are you not reforesting if carbon dioxide is the ostensible problem? Why is it all about creating new markets and creating a whole new commodity class and like all of this stuff? It's just a financial grift on a huge scale. Um, and I just, I really would like more attention to exposing that for what it is because a lot of people I think are being sort of intellectually bullied, you know, like, oh, if you don't recognize this environmental threat as we're told it is, you know, you don't care about the planet or you're a right wing, blah, 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 or, you know, any number of things uh, can be thrown at you. And people are like, well, I do care about the planet. No, it, I mean, if you care about the planet, you should be speaking out about the financialization of nature by the most predatory right. people in the world, <laughs> um, right. among other things. But I mean, it's a threat. Right. And another thing, too, is the fact that the American military is probably, if if not totally, one of the biggest polluters in the world, at least, you know, over the last hundred years or so. Um, and all of this climate change legislation and stuff doesn't address that at all. Oh, but Whitney, an F-35 is very environmentally sound. <laughs> Well, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about like e the uh, super fun sites in the U.S., which are like toxic waste dumps, basically right. managed by the EPA. Almost all of them are military sites right. and military bases throughout the country have unsafe drinking water that hurts service members and their families and has caused loads of health problems for veterans over the years. Uh, we, the military irradiated the, the Marshall islands and people there have like horrible, um, diseases still 
as a result. And, you know, we colonized the only place that could really grow food in that whole island chain for a giant military base and like all this other stuff. I mean, it's just, and that's just scratching the surface, right? None of that stuff gets addressed by these people who claim to pontificate uh, and preach to us about caring for the environment. And it's all about reducing our energy usage while theirs stays the same. Um, and it's just a bunch of hypocrisy and a bunch of crap. And I just don't see enough people tackling it, unfortunately, you know? Um, and I just, I just wish there was, there was more of it. That's what I'm trying to say, basically. I completely agree. I completely agree. So, um, if you know people who are looking to be sponsored to cover it, let me know. Okay. (laughs) All right. I, I will, but uh, I'm hoping to cover some of it if I can recover from this massive book that I wrote <laughs> and I'm telling, trying to tell people about, cause I mean, there is a lot here, but one really great person who's been covering this and on the beat for years, of course, is a uh, Corey Morningstar at wrong kind of green. Who's been on this yeah. podcast before. And, you know, you can find her, uh, about, uh, uh you know, right. to talk about these issues, but there's really not a lot of people focused on this. Um, and I really wish it, it were so because it is a really key part of, you know, there's a lot of people in independent media, specifically on sort of right-leaning independent media that are talking about the digital ID agenda and all of this stuff, but this is all part of it. And I feel like they're sort of missing uh, the ball here. I, I, I completely agree with you. Completely. Anyway, yeah. So <laughs> I didn't mean to ramble too much. So uh, thanks so much for your your time, Catherine. Uh, can you let people know where to, where to find uh, your work, Solari, and, you know, some of the things you guys have up and coming? Yes. So um, I'm at Solari.com and up and coming is a book review of Whitney Webb's two <laughs> <laughs> book of uh, One Nation Under Blackmail, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, there's a ton there, but I sent a whole bunch of links for your audience related to this discussion. It's all about taking action. And I would start with those links. I think... Um, You know, I just think each one of us in our life has to start shifting to protect ourselves from the game, but in a way that changes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have to take some personal responsibility for the situation that everything, you know, we are all in right now. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be to a a big shift. I mean, start small and, and, and go from there, but you know, we can't just be, um, victims of circumstance when it comes to this stuff, you know, we can't just sit back and see what happens. It's all dependent on us breaking free of, of the existing system and building something parallel. So, you know, that may seem too daunting for some people, but it start, you can start off small and like you alluded to just use cash every day. That's a good way to start. We have a parasite. We have to detox. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but there's, I think there's spirited disagreement as to how to best uh, remove it. <laughs> uh, but I'll leave that discussion for another day. Um, so uh, all of the links that Catherine mentioned and that and the, some of the articles that I mentioned uh, for people listening, those are going to be on the show notes um, that we have available for every podcast. So look for those there. Uh, thanks to everyone who supports this podcast, especially the people who supported uh, my work, why I was uh, MIA and writing the book. Uh, you kept me around and doing this full time and cannot thank you enough. Uh, so, you know, my deepest thanks to you all. Um, if you're interested in being a subscriber, you can go to unlimitedhangout.com and, and look for more information there and some of the perks. And again, uh, for people that are interested in in my work, the interviews I'm doing, and any updates up and coming about the book, I would really encourage you to sign up for our newsletter at unlimitedhangout.com newsletter. 
Uh, And with that being said, uh, thanks so much for listening and catch you all next time.